0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening.
1: Uh, We have, we're going to jump back into our study in Romans, and I'm going to read to you Romans 3, 21 through 26. Jeff Ramsey is going to preach. If you would, in honor of God and his word, please stand. I'm going to read these and then Oh, sorry. Kids, you're awesome. You're dismissed to your classes. Uh, so Romans 3:21 through 26. I'm going to read the scripture at the end of it. I'll say this is the word of the Lord if you would respond if you are truly thankful. Uh, thanks be to God. to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, John.
0: Um, we, had a, uh, we had a work day yesterday. We got a few pictures from our work day. This is our brand new, our brand new play structure. Well, let's go back to that. Let me just stay on that for just a second, because already when you drove in, you saw a bunch of kids on that this morning. Uh, this is Matt Gay's brainchild, um, and it is beautiful in all of our eyes. We are taking a pool on who will be the first kid to fall off of it and half of the benefits of that pool will go towards their medical bills. So, what, what else do we have? We got some, uh, what's our next picture? I think we had some picnic tables that are out there for your enjoyment that are, we got stained yesterday. Uh, this is Jeremy Davis. He single-handedly power-washed, like, the whole building, so looks like new out there. It was great. Um, this is the, the in-process building of said play structure. And Steve Jacobson risked life and limb digging holes to set that in when it was between an electrical box and a giant light pole. So, Steve, on behalf of the children, thank you for putting it all on the line, man. We appreciate that. All right. Thanks to everybody that came out yesterday. That was great. And. um a couple other things got done, and and it was uh, it was great. It was just a great time. So we are, as John said, we're continuing in a series in Romans. We're at like really maybe the most critical hinge in the letter. And so that passage that John read starts with these two words: "But now, but now." And so, um, and so, let me just back up to the to the beginning. This is week eleven. So let me back up to this is probably week three where Paul. Um, in verse 17, uh, set, well, in verse 16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. And he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So he starts talking about righteousness and wrath, and in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But then he turns and says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So we contrast those things. God righteousness and God's wrath revealed towards our unrighteousness. And then we spent six weeks in the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men and the wrath of judgment of God. And for, for the one preaching most of that, it felt not like six weeks, but six months. And that ended two weeks ago when John finished the passage that says this, "'By the works of the flesh, no man will be justified.'" and so there's the righteousness of God that we don't meet up to, so God's wrath is against our unrighteousness, and, and we all understand that. We went through that, and so we need to be justified. Like, we, we need it. We got a problem. We need to fix it, and he says, by the works of the flesh, ain't going to happen, and so, but now, all right, so that's not hopeless, but now, God is going to do something different, and I'll tell you, those six weeks, like, Wore me down. And I'm not, like, I thought about this this week and, like, why do I not like preaching about that stuff so much? And either I just don't like being confrontational and talking about sin and wrath and judgment, or I know that as a rule, kind of a rule follower, I'm cl- inclined to talk about it too much because my identity is wrapped up in my performance. And so I beat myself up for underperforming, so I might as well beat you guys up too. Um, or I don't want to beat everybody over the head with stuff that we can't do anything about when we probably already know that it's stuff that we can't do anything about but at the same time now I feel like the guy from Princess Bride you know what I'm talking about the guy that's sitting down having the uh, the conversation with Wesley about not starting a land war in Asia nobody's ever seen Princess Bride alright alright uh, but I don't want to pretend that we can do or be something that that um, that we are, what we're meant to be I don't want to pretend that we are when we're not and I don't want to say it doesn't matter because it clearly does and we feel it every day and he's in this passage he's going to lean back into it and say there's no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that is um I've talked about this a little bit in the Roman church there's Jewish Christians so Jewish people who grew up Jewish and became Christians and then non-Jewish people Gentiles that became Christians they come from such radically different backgrounds that it's creating tension in the church and he says there's no distinction all of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're made to bear God's image, to like glorify God. And we do because we can't help it. But at the same time, we don't. We don't do it the way that we're supposed to. We, we reflect kind of a corrupted image of God. And that is at the essence of it, our problem. I read this quote this week that will stick with me uh, for a long time. And it was from like a Russian author from the mid-something or other 1800s. And he says, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like. And I bet all of you could say, like, because you're not bad people. I don't know what the heart of a bad person is like. He said, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And then he said, and it is terrible. What a quote. What a quote. And Jesus said this to his guys once. He's like, hey guys, it's not washing your hands and the right food. That's not the problem. It's not what goes in that defiles you. It's the thing that comes out that shows how defiled you are. He said, because out of a man, out of our hearts, come uh, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and those are what defile a person. That's the heart of a, even a good man and woman, right? We know that, and we can pretend it's not the case, but but then from time to time, I had a pastor who used to, he had, he had a coffee cup up, and he's like, when you... He said, when do you find out what's in this cup? And he said, when you knock the cup, when you knock the cup, then whatever's inside of it gets spilled out. And that happens to us. That's happened to me the last few weeks because of our payroll company. So we use a company called Paychex to do our payroll. You know what Paychex does? One thing. (laughs) They, they They literally have one job. And so when we started the church, we had a guy that used to have an accounting firm that kept our books for five or six years. And uh, and then he left, and he passed it on to a friend of his that had an accounting firm, and Scott did a great job, and his buddy didn't do a great job, and I talked to him about it, I'm like, man, you screwed this whole thing up, and he's like, well, I was just doing Scott a favor, and I'm like, well, it's not much of a favor if you screw up my payroll, you know? And so then we went to paychecks because they have one thing to do. And every year they screwed it up. And the only good thing about that is because my mom, who is a CPA but retired at that time, once a year my mom got to call them um, and in her righteous indignation explain to them exactly how they were wrong and how much they screwed it up. And my mom got to feel good about herself even though they screwed up our payroll every single time. And so we went with a small accounting firm in Wake Forest. They did a great job for four or five years. But then last fall they're like, hey, We are, we've lost some personnel. We're going to have to outsource our payroll, but don't worry because we are going to outsource it to paychecks. Oh, so I call the paychecks guy and uh, I'm like, listen, man, the last time we used you guys, you screwed this up every single time and we couldn't get in touch with you to fix it. And so he's like, listen, Jeff, we got all sorts of churches. We know exactly what we're doing, and, and our people, they're right here for you. They're right in town. You get in touch with them anytime you want to. I get my W-2, sure enough, completely screwed up. This is two months ago. I immediately contacted them. We filed an extension on Friday, Good. and I, like there's, there's like several ways that they've screwed this up. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it later. That cup has been knocked. The things that have come out of me in in the last month or so about this paycheck situations, they're not healthy. And I know what's happening is like, it's like road rage. You're not really that mad about getting cut off, but all the things that you are mad about, that you can't do anything about, that you're not sure if it's justified anger, are getting justified in this one situation. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's just times the cup gets knocked and it comes out and we find out, like, I know the heart of a good man. It's terrible in more ways than I can describe to you. And what do we do about that? And that's where Paul is. What do we do about that? Should we just keep beating ourselves up about it? How many people want to just keep beating ourselves up about it? I don't. uh, Do we settle for who we are and just despair? Because that would be an option. Do we settle for who we are and indulge? celebrate even whatever those desires are because they're there and so they must be okay I mean that's the what the the way of the world right now in particular but probably for all time the situation paul has left us in a desperate place and it's meant to feel desperate because it is desperate and so he says but now and that but is great news but now The righteousness of God. So he goes back to the beginning. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he's been talking about the law, the law which we could not keep, the law which shows us the difference between who we're meant to be and who we are. But now the righteousness has been revealed. These verses... I don't think I've ever paid a lot of attention to these verses, and this week I came across a guy named Donald Barnhouse, and I'd heard that name before, and I looked him up. He was the pastor of a, of like a really famous, influential church in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian Church. For 33 years, he was the pastor in the mid 1900s. Great pastor, prolific writer, media pioneer, was on the radio, just legend and a great pastor. He led a weekly study. On the book of Romans, weekly study, book of just the book of Romans for 21 years, All right? Dan, you ready for 21 years to read a weekly study on the book of Romans? It only ended because he died, and uh, he said, he said this. I'm convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses, these six verses, are the most important verses in the Bible. And like looking through it, I kind of get it. I get it. And so the danger of that, of saying that, is that you're going to think, well, this is the most important stuff. I don't have to come back. Uh, But the upside is, man, pay attention to these verses and what Paul has to say. And it's really, it is the hinge of Romans because the next few chapters, like what he's going to say here is so spectacular and radical and kind of outside our box if we really get it that the next few chapters he's going to have to explain what he explained. All the questions that he asked, what about this? I know people say this. It all comes out of these verses because they're a distillation of the gospel and there's a purity to what he states in these six verses. So let me read like the first four. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe And this is really the guts of it. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Like, oh, this is thick, and it's got three three big words, right? Justification is a big word, redemption is a big word, propitiation is a big word, but man, they're not they're simple concepts. And so, um, what we're going to see in this is the justice of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God. All of it in really like those two verses. So here's the first thing we see, we are justified, and that means that the slate has been literally wiped clean. So justification, um, one person pointed out, is the opposite of condemnation. Have you ever felt condemned? Yes, in the last six weeks of this Roman series, as a matter of fact, I have felt condemned. (laughs) Um, We, uh, like we condemn houses when they're not fit to live in. Uh, have you ever felt like kind of not fit to live in? Um, I think about like the mental health crisis we're experiencing as a culture and particularly our young people and I feel like people feel condemned um, a lot, you know? And I thought about things to get houses condemned, so has anybody ever had like a black mold problem in their house? Uh, Like once you get that in your house and they find out about it, and you don't take care of it right away. That stuff will spread and take over, and they got to rip it back down to the studs to try and get rid of it. And if and if you're lucky, they can. Uh, smoke damage will do it. You know, my um, aunt and uncle had a fire a few years ago and had to. I think they had to just tear the house down because there was smoke and all the stuff was wasted because smoke gets everywhere. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not much of a, um, I'm not much of a gardener, but I. Uh, I planted bulbs a few years ago, and no one told me that once you plant bulbs, you never get rid of bulbs. And so they grew, and they're real nice, but then they got too big, and I thought, I'm going to get rid of these. So I pulled them out, and I thought, I'm done with you. I wasn't done with them. Like a few weeks later, they were back. And so I pulled those out, and I said, okay, now I'm done with you. And then a few weeks later, they were back. And so I pulled those out, and I said, I'm done with you. And this is how it feels like. We have a problem we can't fix, and that's where condemned comes from, right? Uh, so one person wrote, to condemn is not merely to punish, but to declare the accused guilty or worthy of punishment. And justification is not merely to remit that punishment, but declare, to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. Justification is not merely to remit the punishment but it's to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. And there was something in that that it was a little bit new to me about this idea of justification. It's to declare you not condemned but innocent, but it's, like to, it's not to say, um, you know, a little mole, a little smoke damage, a few bulbs, that's not a big deal, don't worry about it. It's to make those things magically disappear uh, like, they, like they were never there. Um, Another person brought up justification versus pardon. So they said, pardon is the remission of punishment. Justification is a declaration that no grounds for the infliction of punishment exists. No grounds for the infliction of punishment exists. So um, every time a president leaves office, what's the last thing that a president does? They issue some pardons. Do we typically think those are like worthy pardons or unworthy pardons? Yeah, you kind of just wait for it, like what's going to happen now. And, um, and this goes all the way back to Washington. So Washington, confedi- or he pardoned the guys that were involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. Are there any students that just studied the Whiskey Rebellion that want to tell us what, what happened in that? Because this is the only time that's going to be a useful bit of information for you. Uh, Abigail. Abigail. <laughs> um, yeah, Lincoln pardoned, now this wasn't before the end of his second term because that term ended abruptly, but he pardoned the Confederate soldiers that were involved in the war. And you can see how he would do that, but you can also see if one of those soldiers killed your son or brother or father, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't think that was just. Uh, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon before he left office for anything they might eventually find him guilty of. <laughs> like, I bet people were ticked about that. Uh, President Carter pardoned Vietnam draft dodgers. Now, if you got drafted and went to Vietnam or you lost a family member in Vietnam and he pardoned the draft dodgers, I bet you're still mad about that. Um, uh, Bill Clinton pardoned his half-brother who had trafficked cocaine, or maybe that was Carter. MIC's mixed up. Clinton also pardoned a guy named Frank Rich. Frank Rich had been found, of ta- found guilty of tax evasion to the tune of $48 million and had lived overseas for 20 years because of it, gave a couple million dollars to the Democratic Party, and Clinton pardoned him. People were ticked about that. Trump pardoned his son-in-law's dad, Charles Kushner, and also pardoned Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Steve Bannon, cronies of his. Do those pardons feel like justice? No, they make you feel a little bit slimy, right? They feel like corruption. God did not pardon us. He didn't say, ah, okay, we'll just let it slide. He justified us. One is the remission of punishment. The other is a declaration that no grounds for the infliction of punishment exists. Pardon is a remission of a penalty. Justification is the bestowal of a righteous status. When in Isaiah it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That is the result of justification. Pardon says you can go. Justification says you may come. Right? There's a depth to that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we can be justified by his grace as a gift. When we feel condemned, like what do you do with your condemnation? It's not what we do because we can't do anything with it. It's what he has done through Christ. And later Paul's going to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's because by the works of the flesh no man will be justified. But by the works of Christ we can be justified. we're justified by his grace as a gift and then through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he moves on to redemption. We've been redeemed and that means we're free. So justification is a legal term. Redemption is an economic term. In the Old Testament, people who got in serious economic trouble would sell themselves into a form of slavery or indentured servitude. But they could buy themselves out of it. Um, I'm not sure, like I thought, that might be a bit like personal debt. If you've ever been in a personal debt problem, particularly like a credit card debt where they're charging you 20% interest, and you've gotten in way over your head, and you feel like, I'm never getting out of this, or like payday loans, which is just criminal, you know, and if you've been in that situation, you think, I'm never going to get out of this, and I think that's how that slavery in the Old Testament felt, but they could redeem themselves from that slavery. So this is Leviticus, if a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of that stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And that's different by and large than what happened in the U.S. South. Um, although it did happen, there's a there's a great book at the library called The Diary of Lunsford Lane, who was a slave in Raleigh in the 1840s, who bought his he he bought his way out of slavery, and then eventually bought his family's way out of slavery. And it's a little book and a great read because the people who the streets are named after downtown are in the book, and you find out which were the good guys and which were the bad guys, like which guys helped him and which guys um, didn't. But but it didn't happen often. And the picture in the Bible is that we are. We are slaves to sin, but we cannot, as hard as we try, buy ourselves out of that slavery. And um, in the picture in the book of Ruth is Boaz as the kinsman redeemer that is going to come buy us out. and He's a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can redeem us from our slavery. And so he has redeemed us, and he's paid the price, and he's bought our freedom. And so we are no longer slaves to sin because of what he's done for us. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now we're getting into the really big words. Jesus is our propitiation. And that means that God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied. So to propitiate meant to regain the favor of a God. To, to, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation his blood all these things had to work together um, we didn't do the propitiating we didn't satisfy god's wrath against our sin but god did it for us through jesus now i'm gonna i'm gonna jump to the last paragraph in this passage um and it paul says this this was to show god's righteousness all of this because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and that means in the old testament in his divine forbearance he passed over those sins And that is an unsatisfying term. He didn't justify, he didn't redeem, there wasn't propitiation, there was pardon in the Old Testament of those sins because he knew what was going to happen in Jesus. And so this happened now to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Because what he did in the Old Testament was more like a presidential pardon and it wasn't actually just because there wasn't propitiation and there wasn't redemption and there wasn't justification because it was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do for us. Um, the word for propitiation is in the, in the Greek, helisterion. And, um, and so it was used in primitive religions as satisfying the wrath of the gods. But in primitive religions, the, the gods were ill-tempered, they were capricious, they were impulsive, they were not just. And so their wrath was capricious and impulsive and ill-tempered, and so people did what they could to try and satisfy that wrath. God's wrath against sin is justified because sin has corrupted his good creation, and he uses the law in the Old Testament to show that his wrath makes sense, and, and we talked about that for six weeks, why his wrath makes sense. In those primitive religions, we bring a sacrifice to those gods hoping to satisfy the wrath in the Old Testament, God prescribes what the, what the sacrifice that we should bring to satisfy his wrath. And so guilt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings and all of these offerings. And so they would bring it to the temple. And, and yet, like, it didn't change their hearts. And eventually in the prophets, he says, man, I'm just sick of your ceremonies and sick of your sacrifices. What I want is your hearts to change. And those sacrifices can't do it. And that's all pointing forward to the one sacrifice that can do it, and it's Jesus. And God is the one that makes the sacrifice that will satisfy his own wrath. And so in 1 John 4, this is love, not that we've loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, the satisfaction for our sin. In the Old Testament, he overlooked them because he knew he was eventually going to pay for them. One person wrote, God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men, and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, he purposed to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which we deserved. Um, This was interesting. The word hilasterion is the word in the Old Testament that's used for the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant um, was the Ark that they carried around in the desert and had the law in it and um, Aaron's staff. And they put that in the temple in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And the high priest went in there one time of year, and he would sprinkle the blood Um, of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat and that's where the they would meet with god the very presence of god would be right there and so that's the picture that he's evoking is that propitiation is satisfied and when jesus dies on the cross the curtain rips from top to bottom not from bottom to top we didn't do it he did it so that we can go into the holy of holies and be in the presence of god anytime that we want and so this verse is is bringing all of that together There's no distinction. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. But all of us are justified, can be justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption, we can be set free in Christ Jesus, whom God himself put forward as the satisfaction, the propitiation by his blood of God's anger towards paychecks, right? Like his anger towards sin and me and the heart of the good man that is terrible. Which, like, we, we get the tension in that. Like, he loves us, but our, it's, we, we, we love each other, but our sin drives each other crazy. What do we do about that? We can't do it, but he can do it. And this passage is where he's saying, this is exactly how I did it. I might put him in reverse order. Propitiation, satisfied his wrath, redemption, set us free, justification, said there is no basis on which to accuse you of anything anymore. That's phenomenal, right? Like this is the greatest news you'll ever hear in your life. And I got thinking, what's the best thing you've ever gotten for free? Anybody? Or when have you benefited the most from someone else's generosity? Does something come to mind? Nothing. You could start with what's the best Christmas gift you ever got? right? This is probably mine, most memorable. It was the Star Wars Death Star when I was seven years old. And it was more amazing than it looks in that picture, all right? That thing at the bottom was the little, uh, the little trash compactor that they got stuck in, and um, the little foam things there were the trash, and then there's the little thing that pulled Luke under it. It's awesome. My grandma got that for me, Now, it was Christmas, so generosity is kind of expected at Christmas, so I don't think I was as grateful as I've been for other things, but I spent a bit of time thinking this week about being the recipient of other people's generosity and how that's affected me. So like little things, when I I first started working at Hope Community Church as a youth pastor, Bobby Joe was in nursing school, we didn't have any money, but there were some guys at the church that were kind of in their prime earning years, their kids were older, so they they had time, and they'd go golfing all the time, and they'd just take me golfing, and I'd be like, I can't really, like, swing that right now. They're like, don't worry about it. We got it. And they take me golfing all the time. And there's this like, little bits of generosity that I totally appreciated, but we're kind of disarming. Um, a couple years after we started this church, uh, Mike called me up and had me come over to Hope, and he was taking folks to Israel for the first time. And, like, every five people he got signed up, the tour groups gave him a free ticket so that he could take some pastors. That you know, can't swing the couple thousand dollars that it would take to go over to Israel. And so he invited me um, to go on that trip with him. Now, he invited me after I reminded him that I named my first son after him. So I, like, cashed in everything and twisted screws and all that stuff to get there, but I did. And, like, that was just a remarkable generosity and, like, a life-changing trip in a lot of ways. A couple years ago, I was preaching a sermon, and I used, I'd somehow was talking about my my old Honda Civic that had 250,000 miles, and I've been praying for like a year or two, like, God, I know this isn't going to last forever. Bobby Joe was still only working part-time. Our kids were little. Like, just everything was crunched, And, um, and so after church that day, someone asked me, hey, what's your dream car? And I thought, well, my dream car is an early 60s metallic blue Corvette, but I don't think that's the question you're asking right now, And Nate had just gotten his Prius, and so we drove around in that, and I thought it was pretty cool. And I said, I think my dream car is a Prius. I'm the only person in the history of the world that's ever said that a dream car is a Prius. Um, But they gave me a Prius. Like, they gave me a car, you know. And Michael, it's a miracle car. It's got 250,000 miles on it now. We still haven't had to replace the battery. Knock on wood in the Jesus' way. and uh, like just, But it was like a disarming gift, you know. Um, I talk about this pastor's cohort, and John and I met with them a few weeks ago in Memphis. Well, when that thing started, I told the guy, like, hey, we just can't, like, the church can't swing the expense for that right now, and he's like, you know what, I'll figure out a way to get it paid for. Don't worry about it. You know, do what you can later, and um, man, like, I liked that and didn't like it at the same time, but every time I meet with that group, like, I'm reminded of that generosity towards me and how that's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, being a pastor at a church like, and we've got a few staff, you know, but but any church, like the, the bulk of the work gets done. I calculated this out at one point, the bulk of the work in any given week gets done by volunteers. Uh, not by staff. And so you're really at the mercy of the people that give their time and energy. Like yesterday, I sent out a big email last night about that because I was just so thankful that guys showed up and put some time and energy um, into the building. And man, I, that is a generosity that I benefit from. It's your generosity towards the Lord, you know, but I benefit from the Lord and yours generosity towards me. And every week when I pray through the church roster, they're just like just some names I stop at. Like we would not be here without those folks be in here, just the way that God has used them. And I realize that I'm the beneficiary of that generosity, you know, and some of them are paid, but they're not paid enough. So you should treat them like volunteers. The whole buffet thing last week, Tiffany did that whole thing. She probably worked three times the hours that we paid her for last week. Um, You know, we have some most valuable volunteers and the, and one that people I don't think about, and I don't even know he's in here, but like Kelly's on staff, but Matt does everything that Kelly does. And like, Kelly, I think, is, like, the mastermind. Matt's the one that does the stuff, you know. And he takes care of the building, and he runs sound, and he teaches kids. And, like, people just don't, we don't realize, like, the energy that people put in. And, and it's a generosity um, that you benefit from. But, but I feel it, you know. Um, and especially during COVID, and especially during COVID, there's been some people that financially have been responsive to what God's led them to and generous towards the church and, um, man. So I'll say a word about giving. We send out our, we've sent out like the last couple months updates on giving and expenses. And the first few months were less than spectacular. That's not totally out of place for the beginning of year. March was better. That update will come out this week. Um, But if this is your church, um, throughout the Bible, God calls us to to give of the first fruits of what he's given us, because everything we have, he's given to us, and the first fruits are supposed to go back to him. And that's not like writing a letter to Santa Claus at the North Pole, you know what I mean? Like, you don't just put it checked into the ether. It has gone to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, to the temple, in the New Testament, to the church, and to to other, not just the church, other ministries um, that are doing the work of the Lord, but like um if you if it's your church and you're not giving on a regular basis uh, i'd ask you to pray hard about that it's between you and god not you and me but it affects all of us during covid there have been some people that have been if you knew like crazy like god has blessed them and they're like well 10 percent of that is this and so here you go and just floated us through this thing because god has been gracious to us and it is totally disarming for me um, the last thing I thought of, well, the first thing I thought of when I thought about just generosity um, is God's generosity towards uh, my wife and I and our family with our kids doing as well as they're doing. I dare you to find on the face of the earth a sibling group of four kids that are doing better relationally, emotionally, spiritually, academically um, than, than my four kids. I dare you. It might be them that are doing as well. Um, I'm going to embarrass Abigail for a second. She goes to Enlow. She's got like 2,400 students at Enlow. She's involved in their Young Life group. She's the editor of the yearbook this year. She's the captain of the soccer team. And this week she got elected to be Madam Vice President of the Student Council. And, and, um, and there's four vice presidents and a president. And the thing that she's in charge of as vice president is the charity ball. She's the vice president of service. The charity ball, which is like, it's, they don't have homecoming in the fall like a dance. They have the charity ball. And they raise $150,000 every year for some local nonprofit. And she wanted to be in charge of raising $150,000. Little Abigail, little quiet Abigail, wanted to be in charge of raising $150,000 for a local nonprofit. I will never write a book about parenting. If I wrote a book about parenting, it would be a pamphlet. Like, we were not bad parents, we were good parents, but we weren't great parents. And there's a hundred things I would, a million things I would do differently as a parent. Um, But it is God's grace to us. Like Spend some time this week thinking about the ways you have benefited from the generosity of others and the generosity of the Lord. And this passage is about the generosity of God towards you and towards me. And it's distilled down. We were rightly condemned because of our slavery to sin. And he's not just pardoned us. He justified us. He declared that there is no basis on which to bring charges against us. And he's able to do that because Jesus has taken it for us and set us free from our slavery to sin. He did that by the blood which satisfied God's anger. And he, and he gives that to you. This is what Paul's saying, and this is what he's going to have to explain away the next few chapters. He gives that to you with no strings attached. He gives it to you freely. And then you look at the next few chapters, and he's gonna, it's like he's going to have to say over and over again, No, really, I mean it. Like the wages of sin and death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like he just keeps saying it because it's unbelievable. It's so amazing. It's so unbelievable. And in the end of Romans 7 into Romans 8, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who have been justified, who are in Christ Jesus. And I thought about the mixed emotions I have when I, when I think about people's generosity towards me. And there's gratitude, for sure. And there's admiration and affection for the, for the, the giver of, of the generosity. Um, but there's also like a powerlessness, I feel. A weakness. Um, I mean, a relief because there's a burden that has been taken away, but a little bit of worthlessness Because I wasn't able to provide it for myself, and vulnerability because I don't like being dependent upon somebody else's goodness. And Paul's gonna dig into all these things in the next few chapters a longing to be able to return that goodness to them. But at the bottom, and it took me too long to get to this one, I feel loved. I think if we knew anything, that's what he'd want us to know, that we're loved. I, um, well, I'll finish with two things. This is um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And he goes to um, Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he'd been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Like that's his plan for us. He says, what does that mean? He says, for those who are in Christ, it means that one day he is going to walk us through, and you'd have to have read the Chronicles of Narnia, but the wardrobe into Narnia, and we will stand there paralyzed with joy, wonder, astonishment, and relief. It means that as we stand there, we will never be scolded for the sins of this life, never looked at askance, and never told, enjoy this, but remember, you don't deserve this. Never. The very point of heaven and eternity is to enjoy his grace and kindness. And if the point of heaven is to show the immeasurable graces, riches of his grace and kindness, then we are safe because the one thing we fear will keep us out, our sin, can only heighten the spectacle of God's grace and God's kindness. I thought of this story, too. It was in a Brennan Manning book. He says, perhaps you've heard this story. Four years ago, in a large city in the far west, rumors spread that a certain Catholic woman was having visions of Jesus. The reports reached the archbishop. He decided to check her out. There's always a fine line between the authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. Is it true, ma'am, that you have visions of Jesus? Asked the archbishop. Yes, the woman replied simply. Well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly, he said. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of recent apparition. Please come, she said. Within the hour the archbishop arrived, he he trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me on the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop, said the woman. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand. Gazed deep into his eyes. Bishop, she said, these are his exact words. I can't remember. There's so many things that come out of that, you know. And they'll come out of that in the next few weeks in the book of Romans. When I read the passage earlier this week, I thought, man, this just feels like freedom. And thought about that passage where it says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And if you were in Christ... You are free. And this is the gift that he's offered you. And my prayer today is that I would walk out of here, you would walk out of here with just a deepened understanding of what he's given us in Christ and the freedom that we have in Christ. And if you've never, it's a gift. He says it over and over again. You receive it. You receive it. And if you never received it, let today be the day you say jesus i need to be redeemed i need that propitiation i need to be justified and take the gift that he's given you in christ we're going to take communion in a minute and um man the symbols that god's given us baptism we saw last week is we've been made new in him we've been raised to new life There's no accusation that can be brought against us because we've been raised to new life in Christ. And communion is this picture that his body has been broken for us and his blood has been shed for us so that we can be redeemed and God's wrath is propitiated and we are justified and no accusation can be brought against us. And so if you have believed in who Christ is and what he's done for you, we invite you um, to celebrate that by taking communion with us during these next few songs. Father, thanks for this passage. I thank you for the way that it snuck up on me this week. And I pray that it sneaks up on others similarly, Lord. And for a distillation of what you've done for us in the gospel. That your righteousness had been manifested to us in Jesus. But then your righteousness has been offered to us through what Jesus has done for us. To the point where we we have the righteousness of christ in us when you look at us that's what you see that no accusation can be brought against us because of the gift that you've given us in the life death resurrection of jesus may we walk out of here knowing that we're free but more than that that we are loved lord find life in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.